0: Welcome to the party, pals, a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com to check out the eclectic and exciting collection of podcasts they have to offer. That's OsirisPod.com. Now let's get this party started. Welcome to the Party Pal, the mind-bending film and television podcast you didn't know you needed. I am one of your hosts, Michael Shields, and I have with me today film historian and part of the Welcome to the Party Pal team, Christian Needham. How are you doing, Christian? I'm doing well, Michael. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to have you back. I always uh, love talking film with you or television, whatever we're doing. And uh, we got a doozy here today because here today we're here to um, uh, discuss truth and its fragility. We're uh, here to talk about the nature of truth and the nature of art and of the fine line between deceit and entertainment. Uh, to do that, that, that weighty topic we've taken on, we're going to examine a couple films. Um, one of those is called An Honest Liar and another is uh, F for Fake. So uh, I think to kick things off, we'll, we'll, we'll start with An Honest Liar, which is the incredible... True story of the renowned ma- ma- magician turned skeptic and exposer of frauds and hoaxes that is James the Amazing Randy. Um, it's, it's, I thought this was great. You can find this on um, Amazon Prime and a really great documentary about a, a, a an fascinating figure um, that was really around a whole bunch during the 70s and 80s. It's, uh, what'd you think of the film? What'd you think of An Honest Liar, Christian?
1: There's nothing like hearing about lies and um,
0: deception from a guy who
1: made his (laughs) career as a
0: professional charlatan. Yes. I mean, who would know Um, who would know it more? Um, You know, it's it's he had this whole take about, you know, it it was like kind of a magic as a magician. He was really a purist and he believed it was okay to fool people. Um, as long as you're honest about fooling them and, and you know and also or as long as you're educating them to how the real world works. So I mean, you know who better if you look at it this way to expose and, and show you what's really going on out there than someone who is a, a, a you know a charlatan?
1: Indeed, yeah and he the great thing about the amazing Randy is that he started out. Um, fully in, as an escape artist, magician, mm-hmm. as someone that's really, um, you know, just who just was immersed as as an active participant, as an illusion. And he, for whatever, reason, however he developed his moral compass, became very protective yeah. of the relationship of the between the audience and and the performer. Mm-hmm. And that's really unique really interesting and he's um kind of feel like he's the heir to others within the industry of or in the performance arts that, that have popped up over the years that have been very vocal about that about not using their well about using their powers for good so yeah. to speak
0: do you have any examples and, of
1: those that you're speaking of? um
0: yeah i mean i think the the big one is houdini which is so he's definitely carrying the torch in that way, and it just is, you know, his skill and his craft really turned him. I thought this was really fascinating, like kind of this viewpoint, um, into a bit of a rock star. And I always like the idea of magicians and uh, you know, someone who's kind of an, from an offbeat, eccentric art becoming that big and that popular. And you know, that was exemplified when he was, um, you know, he had that big uh exhibit of him hanging over Niagara Falls. We fo- We see him. We see him on the show "Happy Days." Um, we see him working with Alice Cooper on his performance. I mean, he's he became a household name, which is really really cool to think about. Yeah, and,
1: and the other thing too is he's at the dawn of television, where you still have this archived footage from going even back to the '60s, where even then mm-hmm. he was kind of entering middle age. So you have you know a record of the of the more physicality side of him, which is really interesting because mo- for most yeah. people who are familiar with him, it seems like this very, um, this, this very non-threatening old man for the, uh, with, with white hair and a beard. And I think that became part of, uh, his performance too, of just putting people, sure. uh, off their guard in, in terms mm-hmm. of how they did it. But one of the co- cool things about his career too, is, is he's, uh, as the director of the the documentary uh, put in is the times, not just when he was succeeding, but when he fucked up and sometimes that put his own health at risk. There were times and his, his reputation, there were times where he, one of the great, um, one of the more interesting things is when he's wheeled out after he messes up a, um, a trick that hurts his, I think he hurts his neck or, or, or something. And he comes out on a gurney to apologize and say, well, that didn't go well, but, uh, you know, <laughs> next time, next time I'll do better. You know,
0: was that, that William Shatner's talk show? Was that Shatner? Oh my God. Yeah. I think that was, yeah. yeah, there was, there was
1: all, that's the other thing is the obscure, uh, history of all the, um, kind of talk shows that were given out to people during the height of yep. like the, the 60s, 70s era. It's pretty amazing just to see, <laughs> to see all that. I mean, everybody wanted to be Carson at a certain point, and, for good reason. I think yeah. Randy Randy's reputation was made on, on late night. Um, his most mm-hmm. infamous, famous um, kind of examples of debunkery of, of charlatans was uh, stuff that, that took place either on late night talk shows or as we moved into the 80s, um, documentary style on investigative news shows. And that kind yeah. of, but the big one, the the big probably the most famous one, and the one that that's at least my favorite, is uh, this relationship that he forges with Johnny Carson, mm-hmm. who is himself a magician and was interested in and in, in magic and implemented – I mean, famously had the uh, Karnak the Magnificent, uh, Karnak the Magnificent, who would yeah. you know he'd hold up. Uh, a letter and give you the three answers, and then there's the question in inside the letter. And it was it was as a joke, but again, it was like in the tradition of of you know illusion and and stagecraft that um, Carson also uh, came from and had a respect for. And I think the, one of the great uh, moments in the documentary and one of the mo- great moments in in his career was the debunking of a guy named uh, Uri Geller, who uh, made his uh, initial splash. Um, in pop culture as a spoon bender where he basically convinced people that he could with his mind, um, bend spoons and, and, um, basically make objects, um, bend literally to his will. And Carson had Geller on his show and, but was suspicious of his claims and used, um, reached out to Randy to be basically, uh, a consultant on setting up the uh the parameters for the appearance of the shows of of Geller's appearance specifically not letting Geller near any of the um props or spoons or other things that would be provided so that he could game the system before he was on there um and it ended up being kind of a humiliating experience for Geller because the basically as it showed that for a lot of these people who are Fakers and, and frauds and charlatans that, um, if you put them through their, you know, very basic but stringent, um, controls, mm-hmm. they it will debunk people right there. And so that was something that was like the beginning of a, a very kind of long, contentious back and forth, uh, on the public stage between Geller and Randy. Um, even though Randy was convinced that that was going to be the end of Geller, yet you. Admits he underestimated this guy's willful need to just continue to be on the public stage and and kind of endear himself and and return again and again. Um, so it was it was it was fascinating the the idea that this took place on late night for viewers. If you were a viewer seeing this play in real time, it was a unique
0: experience to see, to see this play out. And it was fun too because and and it highlights just how. Many of these talk shows, there were just how they were kind of the the platforms of the day where people would go to, you know, whether they had something coming out to promote, and I guess that's still the case. But I mean, or they were just selling whatever goods they had. In this case, it was magic. Yuri just went on another show the next night to discuss, you know, what happened, and there was kind of like this whole back and forth that was being played out on these talk shows. It was great, but it is it's it's a really cool moment within this doc when he you, you see that expose of yuri on carson and i thought it was i I, I really thought it it it's i'm gonna go back to what i said about him being such a purist of of a magician he uh he just it it seemed to like really upset him um when magic wasn't used for entertainment or just like in in the way that he believed magic should be used for and i guess his goal at the end of the day was to kind of help us question everything instead of um you know, instead of deceiving people to kind of open eyes instead of trick. And I just, I think that was just a really noble pursuit. There was, it was, he was standing up for magic in a way that, that, you know, of what he believed it should be. And, you know, if you think of um, Randy and just how skilled he was, um, he could have easily, just like many of these people, been using his powers for, powers, I mean skills, for, for, you know, in more, Uh, nefarious ways and and for more, you know, and for evil. I'll just say that he could could have gone the other way too and probably made more money or actually he was, he, he got huge. He was a big deal, but you know, he could have used it for other reasons as well. So you do, if you have these skills, you kind of got to make the decision. Am I going to do it for what I believe it to be the right way or, or am I going to go this other route, which is a little, little more deceitful?
1: Well, I think he was adamant from the beginning or very early on in his career about, coming forth to tell the audience what you're about to see is not magic. There's no such yes. thing as magic. This is illusion. This is a skill. Yep. This is something that, that, and I think that that pins something to, to great magicians too, that this takes an enormous amount of time and dedication and sacrifice really of of time and to, to master and um, to become as good as they are. And I think there's something in the psychology of it to admit to, to 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 admitting that and then still pulling off these tricks in an effective way compared to saying like, well, it's magic. I'm just, you know, any that anybody can do it. I think for the more time that these guys put in, especially the great ones, I think the more they're inclined toward that. And again, hence the name of the documentary, An Honest Liar. It all starts with what you tell the audience. I'm going to fool you and this is gonna, this is how this I'm not going to tell you how but you're about to see some illusions and then you kind of let the audience kind of be carried away by their um by their own flow of 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 hip, being hypnotized by by the great acts that you're pulling off
0: he said uh his quote early on was magicians are the most honest people in the world they tell you they're going to fool you and then they do it and he had another quote in the uh Beginning of the show, and I think I'm going to go back to this idea. Even when we get to talking about F is for fake, um, and that's he said right off the bat. He's like, anyone can be deceived. It doesn't. You don't have to be someone who's fooled easily, or you could be someone who's super, super intelligent, and you can be fooled. There's someone out there that found a way to do it.
1: I think that's the quote. I think that's the quote of the of the movie, Michael. I really yeah. do. I think that's the but core yeah, so, of the whole movie, because I think everything that he that he built his career on. The, the idea of skepticism, and he is a skeptic, is the idea also that, you know, it's it's based in your your intelligence, in your ego, and the idea that some of the things that he touched on, uh, and it wasn't just magic, it wasn't just spoon bending, but even something as much as, say, cults or personality, um, yeah. those could, sorts of things, the idea that, you know, over the years, people have wondered, well, especially like family members... You know how did this perfectly intelligent person get carried away by this this uh, by a certain you know fill in the blank ridiculous notion? Even mm-hmm. though they had you know all the intelligence and all all the um, reason and all the you know all all the tools given to them in life, mm-hmm. and it's it doesn't matter. It's the idea that the that people, regardless of intelligence or backgrounds or wealth, can be. Fooled. I mean, otherwise there wouldn't be um, an, a magic illusionist industry. It wouldn't have yeah. be continuing on as much as it has. But I agree with you. The only reason I, you know, I, and that's why I interrupted you just now, just saying oh, no. that's the, he. it's said, he. It, there's a one shot of Randy in, in the documentary a couple of times where he says a variation on that um, a yeah. couple of times. And I think that's something that drives him um, to, no, to no end, is the idea that, He's a very—he's lived his life as an intellectual, essentially, and mm-hmm. um, and that includes he's not—he's—he's he's not religious. Um, mm-hmm. He's you know, for basically, I'm I'm not really convinced until he he met the artist um, who was then known as Jose Alvarez in the 80s at a very late stage in his life. I'm not sure how how much he gave over to romance. Um, Mm -hmm. He said he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't do drugs because he claimed Mm -hmm. it would quote-unquote fuzz the edges of his his mind. This is a guy who dedicated himself to his craft and to to intellect. And that's why it makes a statement like that so profound because it's – it's basically he's lived his life as kind of like the ultimate example of that, and I think again going back to the Houdini example, just a little bit background on Houdini. Um, one of the most basically the traumatic event of Houdini's life is the loss of his mother, and he was desperate to reconnect with her, and so he would go to seances and ch- and channelers, and which was a big thing at the at, uh, at the time, the early part of the. The twentieth century late Victorian era as a way of contacting the dead left loved ones in these parlors and stuff, but again, mm-hmm. these were charlatans, these were people that were essentially preying upon other people they they would claim if for any of those who were out it would usually be for entertainment purposes, but people who went in there desperately usually i mean very or at least very often wanted to believe that this was real and Someone like Houdini, who was himself so skilled as as an illusionist, as, as a prof- professional deceiver, um, picked up on these things spe- um, immediately, and basically spent the latter part of his life debunking and humiliating people who tried to do this because not because he got he got off on it, but because of his need. He wanted to believe that, that these things were real. He, he but. When it became apparent that they weren't that you know he was never going to be able to contact his his loved ones in the afterlife, um, yep. it's it struck him very deeply that he that that this was something that was preying on people like him that for you know who were grieving for for money and I think that's again it's from a different era he's he's a Randy by a different name in a different mm-hmm. era and Absolutely. but. The tools that he used to be able to pull that off, to debunk these people, he could have only gotten as a professional illusionist, as a professional magician, as someone who spent hours and hours and hours, um, days of his, of his life building, building illusions, um, sleight of hands, learning basically also, and more, most importantly, um, a populist approach to psychology on what people, you know, like, if nothing else, what is sleight of hand? How can you draw the gaze? How can you draw, draw the interest of, of people? It's a very, like you said, it's a very double-edged sword. It can be very dangerous for people that do it for selfish, malicious purposes. Um, and I think, yeah, that's one of the things that's really fascinating about Randy is that he, was, he is the... Ultimate example of a guy who has dedicated his life to um, becoming an intellectual, which is again, you know, the arc of the documentary. What makes it so interesting is this relationship that he has very late in life, where with his eventual husband, um, and eventually he doesn't come out to, as as gay until you know until his early eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so maybe we should move on. We should move on to that that specific relationship. The the artist. They he meets and just after Randy moves to Florida from New Jersey.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, because it is important. He is, I mean, he is living a lie, too. While he's doing this whole thing, he's living a lie in a way, and he's perpetuating a lie, and, and he was even, I mean, it is. It's. It is. I mean, so we're talking about um, uh, Jose, who was arrested, which turned out not to be his name, um, and it, it was it was wild i did not see that coming when i when i was watching this and 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 it was it was a fascinating part cuz it did it put in perspective his whole you know his whole um everything about him seems so noble and righteous and then you know he did have to um kind of you know put some things that that he felt couldn't be out there in the world under under a cloak of some sort right and so even though even though it was it, it was something that shouldn't have been there's some new ability there. He didn't know it wasn't okay to be this way. Or maybe it wasn't at certain times. It was just he was trying to live. He was trying to do he was doing it for the right reasons still, if you think about it a certain way.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think the first project that they worked on together, I think, really kind of cements that. In, at least yeah. in my mind. So
0: that's the great Carlos
1: hoax, the great Carlos hoax on Australian yeah. television, which is yeah. pretty amazing. The the fact that this was, a, this was a great, essentially in a, a mix of investigative journalism and, um, s- psychology experiment, uh, and at, mm. at, on a mass scale where basic, where they go to Australia and, um, Jose uh, is basically given the character of Carlos, who's this channeler, and uh, and is they build a whole kind of uh, perception of a following around him. Of this is the that something that will make um, news organizations want to um, report on this and and see how much they can get a, they can convince the public at large that this is a genuine thing before pulling the. Um, before pulling the carpet out from under them, saying no, this is this guy is an actor. This is mm-hmm. this was never true. He's not a channeler. This doesn't exist.
0: And seeing what that what that effect is, and with the idea to expose how easily the media and large groups of people can be manipulated, it, it and with with just that whole you know with hype and uh, a little bit of effort, it was a, it was a. Big picture, eye-opening thing he was pulling. I mean, it's it, quite an endeavor he put on on to display that truth right there. That that people and media can be exposed rather easily, um, and also in that era too. In the in the yeah,
1: nineteen
0: eighties, I think it's you know, if you're talking about
1: pre-internet, it is it is pre-internet, but it's also yep. the the middle the middle development of of the cable era where mm-hmm. channels had begun to. Expands here in the here in the the states, but more specifically, the other parts of the world were always playing a little bit of catch up in terms of sure. of the the options going on. So, um, the it's it's interesting the the idea that like so for instance, I mean I remember. You know, in England, very famously, the development of the BBC—it's because he had like what four channels, or three mm-hmm. channels? It was a huge thing when number four came out. Same thing in the yep. US when you had—you know—Fox became essentially the, the fourth, the fourth yeah. network in the eighties. Uh, I remember. So that. this was still something like so. So the fact that news would choose to have um, something on its on on its precious precious airtime—you would think that it'd be vetted enough to be. Seen as genuine, and this is you know, I think at that point CNN was maybe five to seven years old, but was not nowhere near what it, what it was. So the respect for the perception of of viewers of of news, um, not just in the U.S. or the U.K., but certainly in Australia throughout the English speaking world, was such that it it gave this it gave this this hoax bite, and it was yep. it was actually yep. it was really pretty really, uh, brilliant, but it. it if you had done it even five years later, it wouldn't have the same bite that it did then. And that's really yeah. interesting is that the, the timeliness as Randy's career goes on mm-hmm. of taking advantage of the zeitgeist. So for instance, yeah. would the Uri Geller outing be, have as much bite if it wasn't essentially at the height of Carson's popularity? Carson in the late seventies was must see TV. I mean, the, basically oh, in yeah. terms of l- late night, um, the only reason that he didn't have higher, you know, higher ratings at Saturday Night Live is because he wasn't on Saturday. Otherwise, mm-hmm. he would have been a hell of a competitor. I mean, same network, NBC, yep. but they dominated that 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 idea of people staying up late um, on a night that you could be going out and doing something else and having fun. No, I got to see what you know, see what's going on on uh, on on Carson tonight. I mean, that was that was interesting. The, those those different things, but that was just you know the facilitator like the the channels the, the other side of the zeitgeist stuff that he was really good at was um really honing in on the rise of certain of of the uh, process itself so another mm. thing that he's big in is is the rise of the television
0: evangelist and that's I, that's this, a big this, one. this part was fascinating to me because i think this is important i mean that uh, the the the, the the amount of advantage um faith healers were taking um financially emotionally from people at that time was and I mean still to this day is profound and it's and, and again and I've mentioned how noble I find Randy um his, this his quest to expose faith healers and, and really dishonest faith healers uh, in this time period, I thought was incredible. It ne- it needed to be happened, or I can't imagine the scale. Of these because the they they go through it. They really show you how elaborate their schemes are and their systems are set up, especially at that time with earpieces and and different ways to find out information before that faith healer can can pretend that he you know uh, uh, source that information from God himself. It's it's elaborate schemes that. That might have just kind of gone under the radar if not for someone like Randy. So i really appreciated seeing the you know that he was battling that um that that dishonesty at that point. That was really cool.
1: Yeah, and in this case, I think you know the his, the subject that he that he chose, Peter Popoff, was kind of a symptom of a larger disease um, that was really taking hold in terms yeah, well of opportunists. Yeah, this was right. I believe either before right before or right after. Um, the Jim Baker, Tammy, um, Tammy Faye Baker um, mm-hmm. scandal, which was the all right the, around the same time, really shocking to a lot of people that, that, you know, it was the first kind of high, high profile instance of, of mm-hmm. people feeling like they had been taken. And this was, a, but the pop-off example, as you've, as you've touched on just, um, already is the idea of using secret earpieces and mm-hmm. taking advantage of people writing, Facts about their life on "quote unquote" prayer cards that are then, you know, used against them to make make them feel as if this guy is getting a message from on high of their their problems. And that's yeah, just yeah. it's you know when you put it in it's when sick. it's put in this context, yeah, and that's that's the important thing. The idea that he was he's he's all all of the, these um, he's really doing is presenting it as it is. The idea that he shows, you show up with a camera and let people in on the fact that oh yeah this is this is what's really going on you don't really need to add any more editorial to to that it's it lets people mm-hmm. decide for themselves in a really really direct way just as you said that it's that it's a really sick kind of depraved um, taking advantage of the most um, you know some some of the most people who are who are can least afford to be taken advantage of and also
0: of. in su- and, and also in such need some of these people were having some health problems or just and you're right yeah they're struggling financially just just people really on on the down and out and just getting taken advantage of in a really disgusting way there's one more thing i really want to discuss about when it comes to an honest liar and it wasn't you know hit hard upon but there was a segment where they focused in on the backlash to um to Randy, to, to Randy exposing these things. And there was, there was a lot of people that really just wanted to believe and were upset with Randy and, and almost calling him a liar because they wanted to believe. And I just found this really uh, important when you think about truth and the way truth is handled uh, today. And, and, and just kind of, it, it, the truth can be hard sometimes. And I think a lot of people want to believe Some of the fairy tales they are told because it makes, you know, just like the truth can be hard, life can be hard. And sometimes these fairy tales make things easier. And, um, you know, just one political little aside. I mean, if you look at it, uh, President Trump at this point, he offers many of his supporters kind of an alternate reality where they can live in a denial that the planet is 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 dying and that there is climate change and so they can just go on and live their fairy tale that that, that whatever they're doing in their life is is not hurting the planet they they you know they're offered a, a, a alternate reality where the country isn't failing where you know systems aren't in place that that you know take advantage of people they're 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 given this other you know, uh, a, a fantasy that, that allows them to continue on feeling a little bit better than they might if they were really facing the truth. And I think this is, it's really, it, it, it shows kind of it, the stories sometimes that we have to tell ourselves to get through the days are, are things that, that, that might not be real, but it just makes life easier. And I think sometimes the, the lies help certain people and, and, and some people can't handle the truth and, it makes sense to me, but it's also, you know, it, it can lead to more problems and more problems and more problems. So that was just something that came to mind when I was thinking about it. Because this film, and F is F for Fake, which is uh, which we're about to discuss, is they both really do. They make you think about... You know, what the truth does, not just to an individual, but the larger society as a whole and, and just what it means and what is the truth. I mean, what <laughs> we we right now we are at a point in time where we're wrestling. So many people are wrestling, trying to figure out exactly which which news sources are telling us the truth. What you know, what what it, I, ne- I never imagined we'd reach a place that it would fe- felt like so like on such a high level, we'd be grappling with what truth, what you know what's what's real actually is, but I also believe too that this is something people have been grappling with for a long, long time as well.
1: Mm. yeah, I agree. I agree and I, yeah. and to to get into F, for, F is for fake I Please, think I'm ready some let's first start with the year. so nineteen seventy three right around the time that James Randy was um, designing the magic tricks and the the grotesqueries on Alice Cooper's billion Dollar babies tour. Which included a very realistic um, guillotine sequence. Um, mm-hmm. That same year, um, Orson Welles released essentially his last film, which is a, which is a what we would call today um, kind of a, a video documentary of um, mm. about uh, an art forger and a famous um, an art forger and a and a famous um, literary. Um, forger essentially um, yeah. Yep. Um, who are intertwined and that's the documentary F is for Fake uh, it's directed by Orson Welles and from footage that was uh, shot by Francois Reichenbach um, uh, basically uh, interviewing two men uh, one of them uh, being Elmir Deori, who was the uh, a prolific mm-hmm. art forger in the mid to late uh, 20th century who was living on the island of Ibiza when he was interviewed uh, or discovered or befriended uh, almost a decade earlier before the film was released by Clifford Irving, who was uh, a a faux biographer, um, but a journalist and writer um, who uh, essentially outed him um, in his Mm -hmm. book, Fake. And then uh, Reichenbach interviewed um, Irving and, and, uh, Elmer about this this new notoriety. As it turns out, Irving himself had been w- was going to be um, in caught up in a uh, very famous um, uh, fake biography um, hoax, where he claimed to have interview uh, written the autobiography, the authorized uh, biography. Pardon me of Howard Hughes, mm-hmm. who was at that time um, long away from the public eye, famous, um, famous billionaire subject of later on at Martin Scorsese's film, the aviator, um, who had, you know, been very involved in Hollywood, who had been very, uh, who had been the subject of, uh, in, in social circles as was, you know, a, a playboy until he kind of disappeared and, uh, retreated to, um, Las Vegas, where he bought up a bunch of hotels, uh, one of which he spent essentially the rest of his life in, um, as a recluse. Uh, and, uh, it was interesting by the way, just as at this point in the early seventies, um, with Orson Welles, Orson Welles basically from essentially the same generation remembers that he had, the last time he had talked to, um, he had talked to Howard Hughes was 25 years earlier at four o'clock in the morning in Los Angeles. And you remember to be very friendly, even though it was a really bizarre time to uh, run across a guy who was probably the one of the few wealthiest, um, non non-government heads in the world at that point. Um, it was just a very interesting, interesting decision for, uh, Wells to take on this as a subject for a film. And yeah, it's, it's, Really, it's interesting. Just one more piece of context. Recently, a couple of years ago, there was a, a film, uh, an unfinished film of Wells's that he had been trying for after this the release of F is for Fake uh, to get released called uh, The Other Side of the Wind, which um, was finally posthumously re edited and with, with as much surviving footage as they could get to um, release. And it's kind of a uh, a, a film that is the subject is a, a director, much like Wells himself, on the quest to to get financing for a film and the people that he uh, runs up against and and uh, his day to day kind of wildlife. So it was really interesting, you know, is uh, the idea that that at this point in his career that he was not making, you know, he didn't have interest in in making Citizen Kane or or other. Even though I'm sure he had an interest in it, but it was more he he had shifted to the a more of a documentary kind of mindset, and it was lucky for us that he he um, chose and chose this and had enough money to get it made because it's it's a it's a very very unique watch.
0: What well, yeah, what a weird interesting piece of art it is, and he really he felt. Uh, Ocean Wells felt that he was making a new kind of film. He thought he was doing something super, super different, and and he, it, I'd say he was in a lot of ways. And you know, still some of the the, the techniques he was using were borrowed. And I mean, there's editing um, techniques that are inspired, obviously, by Godard and the French New Wave, and you know, some of the other things he was doing was just straight documentary. But it was it was it was such a unique patchwork of um, of art but it's while it's it there's i mean and just you can as i was listening to you kind of set this up and put context to it there is so much going on in like just the clifford irving um hoax the howard hughes hoax that's a that's worthy of a documentary on its own i was just recently i'm um i was well into that world recently because i just listened to um malcolm gladwell's uh revisionist history episode on it it's wonderful it's called oh howard you idiot it's a deep dive into just how you know intense the hoax was and how how followed it was in the media throughout the nation how much money was involved i mean people were dying for information about um hughes at this time and and he was he was going to give it to them and and <laughs> in any way that he could and so that's worthy of a documentary on its own the elmere situation with his his fakes and his, you know, that I mean, that's that's a documentary on its own. And then we were even brought into and I just kept thinking, thinking about it the whole time. I mean, when are we going to get into the elephant in the room, which is that, I mean, it, 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 Orson himself is, is his his whole craft is birthed from a fake from, the, you know, the most notable one. It was the war of the worlds uh radio broadcast in 1938 that that was to me that's still one of the most fascinating hoaxes and just the reception of it too i mean he was a his his empire was built on on phoniness in a way too and i didn't even know that that he was um to kind of get into his act. And he cooked up uh, a fake Broadway Broadway career uh, hmm. in Dublin. He made made up a bunch of lies. I didn't know that. But, I mean, really, this whole thing is, is lies on top of lies on top of lies. And it was just, it was wild to try to piece it all together and, and figure out, you know, in, in Randy's case, to go back to that, it was easy to kind of, it was easier to see righteousness and nobility And in these cases, it was really difficult because at times it's pretty incredible that Clifford is exposing Elmer and what he's doing and how this is degrading art and could lead to, you know, art just being less valued or or misvalued throughout time. That's 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 important. But then he goes on and he's, he's he does he's part of a huge hoax that could just kind of take away credit to to, uh, you know, biographies and storytelling in another art form. So it's 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 a convoluted mess at times, but it's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah. And I
1: think the thing that makes it work is something that you touched on earlier, that he that Wells was convinced this was a new type of filmmaking, which I get what we would call today a film essay. And uh, previously on uh, another podcast, we talked about another film essay called Los Angeles Plays Itself. Where you mm-hmm. draw in a lot of uh, clips from different films that have portrayed this city, and it's one man's Tom Sanderson's take on on his on this city and how others have portrayed it. I think that's not so far away from, um, even though that's a little bit more straight ahead. The editing in that is is kind of all over the place, as you're, but it's kind of bound together by the different neighborhoods, even though the films come yeah. from different times. In this case. Mm-hmm. The editing, I think, is incredible. I mean, I can—I got to imagine it took a long time to get it right. A long I think I, time, because it comes off as controlled chaos, but the it's again—it's it, controlled. Oh yeah, but it's bound together by, uh, you know, by this voice and by mm. Orson Welles's uh, voice and vision. And again, talk about a guy at the top of his game. He was at that time, and for a very long time. The most sought after English language narrator in films. Mm -hmm. Everybody wanted Orson Mm -hmm. Welles to narrate their film, and so the idea that he's both narrating and and a character in a film that's directed by Orson Welles—it's a unique, (laughs) unique thing. The other thing—people
0: did find it very self-indulgent at the time, though. Oh, yeah. I I see how it could be looked at as that for sure. I
1: mean, years later, we would. Years later, we would get you know the famous frozen peas thing on the radio commercial where he goes off on a guy because he doesn't like the way that the, the voiceover is, and then of course the um, uh, God Paul Masson wine commercial where he's drunk and he's like trying to get through one basic presentation at a you know, at a table for a wine commercial. It was really bizarre, but yeah, he was he was a unique character, but an important one um, in the sense that. As you mentioned with War of the Worlds, he got his start in radio and in theater, and then into film. And but he had an interest in um, in um, magic and and presentation and stuff. So it didn't it's, in that sense, it's not surprising that he ends up as a um, kind of documentarian. I think the reason, I mean, many many books have been written about Wells and his career. The the idea that he wasn't more prolific. Was the idea that he was always on a quest for money for projects, but it wasn't like I was, you know, the projects that he was interested in interested him. He didn't want to like he would work really stock, you know, regular things like up until the end of his life being, you know, doing voice acting for the the Transformers movie just so he could make interesting films like this, you know, Um, and that, and I only say all that because. If you're looking for a guy to have to provide commentary on all these big, big um, kind of hoaxes that could, as you said, have their have their own films made about them, whether or not it's bi- the the fake biographer of Howard Hughes or this prolific uh, art forger, the idea that it's coming from Wells's voice makes it makes brings um, some authority to it that I, I'm not sure play, a, a playful authority. But authority nonetheless, nonetheless because he, book, he kind of bookends the film with his own magic, with his own deceptions, with his own declaration to the camera. What you're about to watch is, is a, a film about lies. And that's, that puts him in the same boat as Randy, that he is telling the audience, this is, these are liars. But what, the, the, what you're about to see is based on fact. These are these are this is a a true film about liars, and that's like makes it really interesting, and it's um, it's pretty gripping in that sense because that kind of carries you along, no matter how you know frenetic the editing gets, you kind of get used to it um, because because it's like it plays to the point of that's what these guys do. It's it's all about deception. It's about distraction. It's about you know like how how is it that uh, you know. Um, that Elmir can, can sell these paintings, he claims to, uh, or bring them to art, quote unquote experts who he has absolute derision for in the film. That's a running theme is the idea of, you know, if art experts can't quote unquote, can't tell the difference between an Elmir and a Modigliani, then what good are art experts? And the idea of trying to convince you, it's like, Oh, there's no, no, no problem with it. The only expert is the forger. Because I'm doing such yeah. a good job that if I can fool them, then there's no
0: point to it. And this whole economy. That was, I, I found that so fascinating, the idea about discrediting ex, experts. Yeah, there's some truth to it, meaning that if he's tricking them over and over again, what are they good for? But also, um, you know, he, he trying to kind of discredit experts in that way is something that, of course, someone who's trying to con you is going to do. I mean, if you are. What you want to do is make sure those that can discredit you are discredited. I mean, it's like you know, someone who's whose store, you know, uh, stories about you in the media are bad. You're going to want to discredit journalists. So, like, there was, I I found it very deceptive, and and you know, it, it kind of hard to take him too seriously when he kept you know bagging on experts too hard because obviously it it only aids him to um you know not. Not be able to be called out so much by experts, but what uh, what you were speaking to there also is just the exceptional talents of Elmer. I mean, I've, I that one thing, and it wasn't pointed that they, they weren't really discussing it too much, but it just I just was in awe of how talented he was, the way he was discussing the brushstrokes of each of the artists and what they do and how they bring it to life and how he can you know, uh, do that as well was jaw dropping. And then I also liked the thought that once he was exposed, that was also a point where you could look at it is that freed him. It, he, he was kind of, you know, caught in this web of, 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 uh, and I'm sure it was very lucrative if, if that was the case, if he was selling as much as he was, but once he was caught, he was kind of free to pursue his own vision in a different way. And I, I really thought that was a really cool idea because I did get caught up in his talent. And I think that's across any of these movies or anyone who's just that deceitful and, and that successful of being the way they're, you know, even though the talent is, is on, you know, the wrong side of good, it's still an impressive talent. And he was an impressive talent I, for sure. I
1: agree with that. And I, but I think one of the, one of the, um, the great things about the film is again keeping mm-hmm. in moments like the interview with with Irving who again is himself a compromised figure except on his opinion of Elmir which I, I I take his I take his I take his takes on Elmir especially Elmir's psychology uh, yeah very very well and there are two points I want to t- talk about the first the first one is Elmir's failure as an artist creating his work his own works. That aren't great works. And then Irving Chalk set up to the fact that he doesn't, he doesn't think Elmir has an original vision. I, I think mm-hmm. it's when you spend decades and decades as essentially an expert copycat and that becomes your whole life. He did this, that, you know, the idea of trying to create something as an original vision that, you know, well, essentially, an example that Will's uses yeah. is the idea of being one of the few pearls in the, the oysters, mm-hmm. the many, the many oysters. oysters. That's um, what I was
0: speaking of. He was handcuffed by that. Absolutely. And the other
1: thing is the idea of what makes Irving's take on what what drives Elmir to be, to do what he did, which is the fact that he feels... That he's, or at least convinced himself, that life has victimized him, um, and that mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. that he's completely that he's completely in the right to essentially make a sucker out of out of at least wealthy, at least um, that he sees in the art world, and that that's that yeah. he has he has kind of developed this psychology where the world has given him a bad hand, so he is going to he's he's basically unbound by the rule of law to be able to do what he, whatever he wants when it comes to helping Elmir. Something that happens after mm-hmm. the film closes though, as you mentioned it kind of we kind of don't see the result is that within five years, I believe Elmir was dead and he had taken his own life because he was about to be extradited yeah. to France mm-hmm. and that's again you know you raise, he had, he had his, um, his profile raised but that also means that there are consequences. And consequences are are also something that run through this film as well. There's yeah. there's something that's very that's very sexy about the act itself, and to be able like, oh these guys are living, they're living they the life they're on Ibiza they've they've they have great stories and and now they're they've gotten away with it well they haven't and they mm-hmm. don't and the idea that you know Clifford Irving can make a buck on a film about Elmer. And but still has to come home to the consequences of Howard Hughes' biography. you know he he if you look at the career of Irving afterward in in academia or writing, you know he never I mean that was it, that was the height. this, like was, this was this yep. was it. You know you, you, mm-hmm. there is a you kind of sacrifice someone like like Irving sacrifices, whether he knows it or not. The possibility of a future career based on the scandal of of this period and you know Elmira obviously being a lot older um, but at the same time the idea of going whether he went whether or not he would have gone to prison or whether or not he Mm -hmm. just the prospect of facing those consequences in a very serious Straightforward idea—the idea that it's not something that he could reshape in his own mind after a lifetime of escaping consequence and have, you know not being able to, you know, not having to face that. You mentioned before the current element of, of politics we're living through right now. Well, there are definitely people in the in you know in the news and in, in presidential politics who have made their life on not having to face consequences and mm-hmm. who live in fear of it. And I think uh, Elmer is a and um, Irving are ciphers for that. And I thought that was I thought Wells using them Trustmated. as as their as as an example for, as as subjects is very prescient. And I think that's what's given this this film um, a very long shelf life. I think it's it's just yeah. as visceral and just as um, topical as it was in
0: 1973. And that's I that's what I was speaking to earlier too. That I I believe they. Like, this this grappling with the truth that, that we're dealing with or people that, you know, use deceit and, and affect the way we look at truth is something that's going to be long, long time going and something that, you know, even as technology grows and people find ways to manipulate technology, I mean, I just see videos of what they can do now. They can put words in people's mouth and we're going to be fighting with the truth for a while. And it's really fun just thinking, you know, t- talking about these two movies at the same time the through lines. And I'm glad you brought up the word consequences because consequences came up and, you know, jail time came up and, and with a deceit and, um, an honest liar. And it came here too. I mean, these people are playing, they're, they're dancing across and back a, a, a line that could really get them in a whole lot of trouble. And it's something that needs to be brought up when you're talking about these talents, um, that they're dealing with. And, you know, the, the, the expert thing, and just uh, uh, that kind of comes up in both too, and just kind of the the idea to to bring it back to what you believed was like the most important point in in an honest liars is that smart people can be affected. We're seeing that all throughout for F fake as well, and Absolutely. people who, who who are really really smart. And I'm watching on uh, HBO. I'm watching, um, and you mentioned Colt already. Uh, it's called The Vow. And it's fascinating. It's about a cult. And the one thing that just has my jaw on the floor about it the entire time is I believe that the people who are getting fooled and are just drawn into this this world. And I find them to be horribly intelligent and impressively impressive on many, many levels. And that's the draw to me is how they. Or even with their uh, uh, vast array of knowledge, they're they're getting pulled into this too. And so, yeah, the, a big takeaway for me, to you know, kind of a closing thought on my end is that it, it's really anyone. We're all susceptible, you know. I, I try to think about what I'm, you know, what what I'm being fooled about, and it, you know, something you can never really really know until your eyes are fully open to something. I'm sure there's things I truly believe. Uh, that I've been taught that that aren't the truth, and that's a wild thing to thought about, uh, think about. Um, I'm curious in just contemplation of these two two films. What what would be your walk away? What's your takeaway from these?
1: The idea of building a career as a performer, as an actor. Something Wells says in, in F is for Fake is that um, magicians are actors. People that are appearing on, you know, whether or not they know it or not or whether or not they admit to it or not, the idea of actors and in in the story of life, essentially. And that's that's really what I'm getting at, is the idea that these performers on stage, when you think at, at first, like, oh, they're just escaping from straitjackets or doing a, a great card trick, or in, in Wells's case, in F is for Fake, transforming a coin into a key, something as simple as that. The idea that that making the whole world essentially an audience, you know, uh, what they would call in confidence schemes, a mark, you know, the idea of that that whole psychology, it goes beyond just any kind of thing like film or the stage. It's something that we see in our politics. It's something that we see in everyday life. Um, And it's something that, that in the back of my head I feel like I got to be on guard against. You know, living in New York City, it's like I'm not going to be taking, taken taken mm-hmm. advantage of. You know, it's mm-hmm. like there's you know, it's not like there are three mon- mm-hmm. three card money games that are on every corner or anything like that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the idea of, of that is a philosophy for life that there are those people that are always ever present. Yeah. And as we've said, some of them use their powers for quote unquote good. The idea of, of debunking or using it mm-hmm. in Jay's case as as uh, not just a magic performer but as an actor to, as as a fictional idea of a fictional representation of that or in Wells's case documenting the people who don't use their powers for good those sorts of things. These people exist and I think the thing that I took away from, from these two films was the idea that the importance of magicians in the idea of, of, expo- of reminding us of, of deception. Yes, there's no such thing as magic, but there are illusions and there is deception and there are liars and there mm. are charlatans.
0: And we should always be on guard of that. No doubt, we got to keep our eyes open. I think Randy would be really happy with us closing on that note because I mean, he really—he was on a mission to have us question everything. And these films are important in that way. They help us. They're—they're they're reminders of the level of deceit out there, how talented these deception artists can be, and just how aware we have to be uh, about them. So, Christian, thank you so much. That was—that was. That was that was a great uh, discussion. Uh, we, those two films, were weaved them in and out of each other, and that was a lot of fun. So thank you very much. Thank you, Michael.
1: And uh, looking forward to uh, talking
0: to you again very soon. I'm sure we will. And uh, thank you, everyone out there, for once again, joining the party.